Chapter 1 of The Great Apostasy by James E. Talmage. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Matthias Whitney. The Great Apostasy by James E. Talmage. Chapter 1 Introduction The Establishment of the Church of Christ. A belief common to all sects and churches professing Christianity is that Jesus Christ, the Savior and Redeemer of the human race, established his church upon the earth by personal ministration in the meridian of time. Ecclesiastical history, as distinguished from secular history, deals with the experiences of the church from the time of its establishment. The conditions under which the church was founded first claim our attention. At the beginning of the Christian era, the Jews, in common with most other nations, were subjects of the Roman Empire. They were allowed a considerable degree of liberty in maintaining their religious observances and national customs generally, but their status was far from that of a free and independent people. The period was one of comparative peace, a time marked by fewer wars and less dissension than the empire had known for many years. These conditions were favorable for the mission of the Christ and for the founding of his church on earth. The religious system's extent at the time of Christ's earthly ministry may be classified in a general way as Jewish and pagan, with a minor system, the Samaritan, which was essentially a mixture of the other two. The children of Israel alone proclaimed the existence of the true and living God. They alone looked forward to the advent of the Messiah, whom mistakenly they awaited as a prospective conqueror coming to crush the enemies of their nation. All other nations, tongues, and peoples bowed to pagan deities, and their worship comprised not but the central rites of heathen idolatry. Paganism was a religion of form and ceremony, based on polytheism, a belief in the existence of a multitude of gods, which deities were subject to all the vices and passions of humanity, while distinguished by immunity from death. Morality and virtue were unknown as elements of heathen service, and the dominant idea in pagan worship was that of propitiating the gods, in the hope of averting their anger and purchasing their favor. The Israelites, or Jews as they were collectively known, thus stood apart among the nations as proud possessors of superior knowledge, with a lineage and literature, with a priestly organization and a system of laws that separated and distinguished them as a people at once peculiar and exclusive. While the Jews regarded their idolatrous neighbors with abhorrence and contempt, they in turn were treated with derision as fanatics and inferiors. But the Jews, while thus distinguished as a people from the rest of the world, were by no means a united people. On the contrary, they were divided among themselves on matters of religious profession and practice. In the first place, there was a deadly enmity between the Jews proper and the Samaritans. These latter were a mixed people, inhabiting a distinct province mostly between Judea and Galilee, largely made up of Assyrian colonists who had intermarried with the Jews. While affirming their belief in the Jehovah of the Old Testament, they practiced many rites belonging to the paganism they claimed to have forsaken, and were regarded by the Jews proper as unorthodox and reprobate. Then the Jews themselves were divided into many contending sects and parties, among which the principal were the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and beside these we read of Essenes, Galileans, Herodians, etc. The Jews were living under the law of Moses, the outward observance of which was enforced by priestly rule, while the spirit of the law was very generally ignored by the priest and people alike. That the Mosaic law was given as a preparation for something greater was afterward affirmed by Paul in his epistle to the saints at Galatia. Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, 
and the fact that a higher law was to supersede the lower is abundantly shown in the Saviour's own teachings. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Again, ye have heard that it hath been said by them of old time, Thou shalt not forswear thyself, but shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths. But I say unto you, Swear not at all. Ye have heard that it hath been said, An eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, That ye resist not evil. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor, and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. These teachings based on love, so different from the spirit of retaliation to which they had been accustomed under the law, caused great surprise among the people, yet in affirmation of the fact that the law was not to be ignored and could only be superseded by its fulfillment, the Master said, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, Till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till it all be fulfilled. It is very evident that the Master had come with a greater doctrine than was then known, and that the teachings of the day were insufficient. For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus himself was strict in complying with all rightful requirements under the law, but he refused to recognize an observance of the letter alone, however rigidly required, as a substitute for compliance with the spirit of the Mosaic injunction. The excellent teachings and precepts of true morality inculcated by the Christ prepared the minds of those who believed his words for the introduction of the gospel in its purity and for the establishment of the Church of Christ as an earthly organization. From among the disciples who followed him, some of whom had been honored by preliminary calls, he chose twelve men whom he ordained to the apostleship. And he ordained twelve, that they should be with him and that he might send them forth to preach. Again, and when it was day, he called unto him his disciples, and of them he chose twelve, whom also he named apostles. The twelve special witnesses of him and his work were sent out to preach in the several cities of the Jews. On this, their first mission, they were instructed to confine their ministrations to the house of Israel, and the burden of their message was, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. They were told to use the power with which they had been invested by ordination in preaching, in healing the sick, in raising the dead even, and in subduing evil spirits. The Master's admonition was, Freely ye have received, freely give. They were to travel without money or provisions, relying upon a higher power to supply their needs through the agency of those to whom they would offer the message of truth, and they were warned of the possible hardships awaiting them, and of the persecution which sooner or later would surely befall them. At a later date, Christ called others to the work of the ministry, and sent them out in pairs to precede him, and prepare the people for his coming. Thus we read of the Seventy, who were instructed in terms almost identical with those of the Apostolic Commission, that their investiture was one of authority and power, and no mere form is shown by the success attending their administrations. For when they returned, they reported triumphantly, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. The specific commission given unto the apostles at the time of their ordination was afterward emphasized. 
they were the subjects of the particularly solemn ordinance spoken of as the washing of feet so necessary that in reply to peter's objection the lord said if i wash thee not thou hast no part with me and unto the eleven who had remained faithful the risen lord delivered his parting instructions immediately before the ascension go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature after our lord's departure the apostles entered upon the ministry with vigor and they went forth and preached everywhere the lord working with them and confirming the words with signs following these scriptures indicate the authority of the apostles to administer the affairs of the church after the ascension of the resurrected messiah that peter the senior member of the apostolic council was given a position of presidency appears from the saviour's special admonition and charge on the shores of the tiberian sea that the apostles realized that though the master had gone he had left with them authority and command to build up the church as an established organization is abundantly proved by scripture they first proceeded to fill the vacancy in the presiding council or quorum of twelve a vacancy occasioned by the apostasy and death of judas iscariot and the mode of procedure in this official act is instructive the installation of a new apostle was not determined by the eleven alone we read that the disciples or members of the church were gathered together about a hundred and twenty in number to them peter presented the matter requiring action and emphasized the fact that the man to be chosen must be one who had personal knowledge and testimony of the lord's ministry and who was therefore qualified to speak as a special witness of the christ which qualification is the distinguishing feature of the apostleship wherefore said peter of these men which have companied with us all the time that the lord jesus went in and out among us being from the baptism of john unto that same day that he was taken up from us must one be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection we are further informed that two men were nominated and that the divine power was invoked to show whether either and if so which was the lord's choice then the votes were cast and the lot fell upon matthias and he was numbered with the eleven apostles it is evident that the apostles considered their council or quorum as definitely organized with a membership limit of twelve and that the work of the church required that the organization be made complete nevertheless we read of none others subsequently chosen to fill vacancies in the council of twelve paul who previous to his conversion was known as saul of tarsus received a special manifestation in which he heard the voice of the risen lord declaring i am jesus whom thou persecutest and thereby he became a special witness of the lord jesus and as such was in truth an apostle though we have no definite scriptural record that he was ever made a member of the council of twelve as showing the importance of ordination to office under the hands of duly constituted authorities we have the instance of paul's ordination though he had conversed with the resurrected jesus though he had been the subject of a special manifestation of divine power in the restoration of his sight he had nevertheless to be baptized and later he was commissioned for the work of the ministry by the authoritative imposition of hands another instance of official action in choosing and setting apart men to special office in the church arose soon after the ordination of matthias it appears that one feature of the church organization in early apostolic days was a common ownership of material things distribution being made according to need as the members increased it was found impracticable for the apostles to devote the necessary attention and time to these temporal matters so they called upon the members to select seven men of honest report whom the apostles would appoint to take special charge of these affairs 
These men were set apart by prayer and by the laying on of hands. The instance is instructive as showing that the apostles realized their possession of authority to direct in the affairs of the church, and that they observed with strict fidelity the principle of common consent in the administration of their high office. They exercised their priestly powers in the spirit of love and with due regard to the rights of the people over whom they were placed to preside. Under the administration of the apostles and others who labored by their direction in positions of lesser authority, the church grew in numbers and influence. For ten or twelve years after the ascension of Christ, Jerusalem remained the headquarters of the church, but branches, or, as designated in the scriptural record, separate churches, were established in the outlying provinces. As such branches were organized, bishops, deacons, and other officers were chosen, and doubtless ordained by authority to minister in local affairs. That the commission of the Lord Jesus to the apostles instructed them to preach the gospel widely, was executed with promptness and zeal, is evident from the rapid growth of the church in the early apostolic times. Paul, writing about A.D. 64, approximately thirty years after the ascension, declares that the gospel had already been carried to every nation, preached to every creature under heaven, by which expression the apostle doubtless means that the gospel message had been so generally proclaimed that all who would might learn of it. Details as to the organization of the church in apostolic days are not given with great fullness. As already shown, the presiding authority was vested in the twelve apostles, and furthermore, the special calling of the seventies has received attention. But beside these, there were evangelists, pastors, and teachers, and in addition, high priests, elders, bishops, etc. The purpose of these several offices is explained by Paul to be for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. The church with its graded offices and its spiritual gifts had been aptly compared to a perfect body, with its separate organs and its individual members, each necessary to the welfare of the whole, yet none independent of the rest. As in the human organism, so in the church of Christ, no one with propriety can say to another, I have no need of thee. The Church of Christ on the Western Hemisphere We have seen, on the evidence of Jewish scriptures, how the church was established and made strong in Asia and Europe in and immediately following the meridian of time. The scriptures cited are such as appeal to all earnest Christians. The authority is that of the New Testament. We have now to consider the establishment of the church amongst those who constituted another division of the House of Israel, a people inhabiting what is now known as the American continent. For the benefit of those who are unfamiliar with the Nephite scriptures, published to the world as the Book of Mormon, a brief historical summary is here presented. In the year 600 B.C., in the reign of King Zedekiah, a small colony was led from Jerusalem by an inspired prophet named Lehi. These people were brought by divine assistance to the shores of the Arabian Sea, where they constructed a vessel in which they crossed the great waters to the western coast of South America. They landed 590 BC. The people were soon divided into two parties, led respectively by Nephi and Laman, sons of Lehi, and these factions grew into opposing nations known in history as Nephites and Lamanites. The former developed, while the latter retrograded, in the arts of civilization. Nephite prophets predicted the earthly advent of the Messiah and foretold his ministry, crucifixion, and resurrection. The record states that the Messiah appeared in person among the Nephites on the western continent. This was subsequent to his ascension from the Mount of Olives. 
a foreshadowing of this great event was given by christ in a declaration made while yet he lived on earth comparing himself to the good shepherd who giveth his life for the sheep he said and other sheep i have which are not of this fold them also i must bring and they shall hear my voice and there shall be one fold and one shepherd according to the nephite record certain predicted signs of the saviour's death had come to pass destructive earthquakes and other dread convulsions of nature had taken place in the west while the supreme tragedy was being enacted on calvary the people of the land bountiful comprising the northern portion of south america were still marveling over the great convulsions that had so terrified them a few weeks earlier and on a certain occasion were gathered together discussing the matter when they heard a voice as from the heavens saying behold my beloved son in whom i am well pleased in whom i have glorified my name hear ye him looking up they beheld a man descending he was clothed in a white robe and as he reached the earth he said behold i am jesus christ whom the prophets testified shall come into the world arise and come forth unto me that ye may thrust your hands into my side and also that ye may feel the prints of the nails in my hands and in my feet that ye may know that i am the god of israel and the god of the whole earth and have been slain for the sins of the world having thus declared himself christ proceeded to instruct the people in the plan of the gospel as he had preached it and in the constitution of the church as he had established it in the east he visited the nephite people on subsequent occasions taught them many of the precepts previously given to the jews emphasized the doctrine of baptism and other ordinances essential to salvation instituted the sacrament in commemoration of his atoning death chose and commissioned twelve apostles on whom he conferred authority in the church explained the importance of designating the organization by its proper name the church of christ and announced the fulfillment of the law of moses and the fact that it was thenceforth superseded by the gospel embodied within the church as established by himself in plan of organization in doctrine and precept and in prescribed ordinances the church of christ in the west was the counterpart of the church in palestine thus in the meridian of time the church of god was founded on both sides of the earth in its pristine simplicity and beauty it exhibited the majesty of a divine institution it is now our saddening duty to consider the decline of spiritual power within the church and the eventual apostasy of the church itself End of chapter 1